Good morning, church. This morning's reading is Matthew 18, verses 10 to 20. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hill and go to look for the one that has wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of his little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, right up front this week, I need to make you aware of an uncomfortable truth. According to Matthew 18, your spiritual life and my spiritual life is other people's business. The spiritual health and growth of any individual Christian is never an individual matter. Discipleship is a community project in which the whole church family plays a role. Therefore, other members of our church have a right and a responsibility to help you grow as a disciple. And actually, you have the right and the responsibility to help other Christians grow as disciples as well. It's not just me as a pastor, it's actually every Christian person who is mutually accountable and responsible for other Christians. Now, I say that's uncomfortable because I think that most of us naturally assume that our own spiritual lives are our own personal business. We see it as a matter of personal choice. You know, whether I'm committed or flaky at church, whether I'm growing or backsliding as a disciple, whether I'm living obediently to God's commands or I'm conveniently ignoring some of them. All of that is between me and God, isn't it? And who am I to speak into somebody else's uh, spiritual life anyway? What right do I have? I think that's the perspective that comes most naturally to most of us. There is just one problem with that perspective, though, and it's that the whole Bible, and specifically Jesus, teaches that that is wrong. That's the wrong perspective to have. And so this morning, I want you to see three great truths from this passage in Matthew 18. First, God doesn't want anyone to be lost, and so we should chase after them. Secondly, we have a strategy to keep one another from being lost, and so we should follow it. And thirdly, the church is where God's authority is heard. 
so we should have confidence in it. So first, God doesn't want any individual Christian to be lost, and so we should go after them. And, and that's Jesus' point in verses 10 to 14. Last week we saw that the way into the kingdom and the way up in the kingdom is to become like a little child. And we saw that that didn't mean becoming innocent or gullible or any of the other things that we might think of when we think of children. But what Jesus meant is that we must humble ourselves. We must take a lowly position. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven means becoming a little one. And, and we saw that every little one, that, that is to say every Christian person, matters immensely to God. Such that uh, we should do anything in our power to prevent other Christians from stumbling off the Christian path and ourselves from stumbling off the Christian path. Jesus said uh, we should welcome little ones because it would be better for a boulder to be strapped to our necks and for us to be thrown into the ocean than for us to, to cause a little one to stumble off. And he also said it would be better for us to have limbs chopped off, uh, eyes uh, gouged out, than for us to keep those things and enter hell because uh, we've stumbled off the path. Well, these are life and death issues. These are heaven and hell issues that Jesus is talking about. And this morning, particularly in verses 10 to 14, we find Jesus continuing on that same theme of uh, the little ones. Only this time, rather than warning of the, the dire consequences of making someone stumble, Jesus wants to motivate us, his church, uh, to loving concern for our Christian brothers and sisters by giving us a window on the Father's heart for his children. And so uh, verse 10 says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, the word for despise could be uh, translated treat with contempt or disregard or show no concern for. It's a lack of care for the well-being of any other Christian. It's an attitude that is something like the opposite of welcoming, which we talked about last week. Now, how might we despise the little ones? Well, by being disinterested in them, by being cold-hearted toward them, by being too busy with other things to notice them, or too lazy or too selfish to do anything to help them, or, or by being absent altogether. I take it there are a number of different ways that we can despise. Now, one of the ways I've seen is for longer-term established members of a church, any church, to think, well, I, I don't have that much concern for newcomers. I already have my established group of friends, the people I know, I enjoy meeting with. Uh, maybe that's my small group, or maybe that's uh, just the, the people that I have a drink with in the week. And so. I have enough friends, I don't need to get to know the new people who are coming into our church. I don't need to invest in them. Now, that's one way we might despise a little one. Or another way that is all too common in many churches is that adult members never speak with, never interact with the children of the church or the young people of the church. 
They believe that somehow that's uh, another person's job to talk to uh, little Johnny or, or little Jane. And so they never show interest. But new people or young people or awkward people or any other person in, in church, any other Christian person, is one of these little ones that Jesus is talking about. And he says, don't despise them. Despising is a dangerous attitude to have towards any fellow Christian because angels carry reports uh, directly into the presence of God. That's what Jesus said. Uh, he, he carries reports of how his children are being treated. And so our disregard for other Christians in our attitudes, in our actions, in the way we speak, well, they cannot escape God's notice. The, the picture is of a court uh, where these messengers are coming in saying, this just happened, God, this just happened. We should instead model our attitude to our fellow Christians on the Father's attitude toward them. And we read that starting in verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that these little ones should perish. Now God is the consummate shepherd. He knows each of his little ones by name. And and, and he notices when they're wandering off. He doesn't say, well, at least the 99 out of 100 are really thriving. He isn't satisfied until all his sheep are numbered and accounted for and being looked after. And each Christian person should have the same concern for our brothers and our sisters uh, who are Christians. So what might that mean practically? Well, first, it surely means that we need to be present with and get to know the sheep of our particular pasture. You cannot care for people that you do not know, that you've never met and that you've never spoken to. Being present and engaged with other Christians on a weekly basis is a, first, uh, is a great first step. Second, it means noticing that someone, uh, noticing when someone falls out of church life. When you are regularly around for a Sunday uh, morning or at a growth group or a prayer meeting or at m many of the other ways that we gather uh, when we're normally able to gather, you begin to notice when certain people haven't been seen in a while. It's a sad fact that when people are going through difficult times, when they're facing real discouragement or real, real doubts in their spiritual life, that they tend to withdraw from church life. That seems to be how most of us naturally respond, but that is, in fact, when they most need other Christians. And so they're withdrawing at the moment of their greatest need. And so we need to be looking out for one another. Uh, and I, as the pastor, certainly need to get better at that, but that is a responsibility that we all have. In, um, in the church life. Third, we shouldn't be satisfied to just watch someone walk away from the church. You know, we sometimes give up too easily. Maybe we've reached out to them once or twice and, 
and it's been to no avail, and so we stop, we give up. But a single sheep on its own is a sheep in danger of perishing. We ought to, to uh, persevere more in calling our brothers and sisters back, back into fellowship with us, uh, or at least try to, to, to push them to find another church to join, another pasture to graze in where they will be safe. So I hope you see that it is God's own heart for his people that every single Christian should be cared for, protected, and built up within the church. Therefore, that should be our hearts as well. Our hearts for one another and our actions should reflect that heart. And that's the first major point that Jesus has in, in this passage. And the second is like it. We have a strategy to keep one another from getting lost. And so we should follow it. And that's what we see in verses 15 to 17. Now, I think the important thing uh, to see, God, I, I think it is important for us to see God's heart for restoring wandering Christians first, so that we can rightly understand uh, these verses that come after. Because what Jesus teaches here can sound very foreign to modern ears, I think. When I last preached about church discipline a, a couple years ago now from 1 Corinthians 5, a few people ended up leaving our church because they considered the idea of a, a public discipline for persistent, unrepentant sin to be harsh, to be outdated, to, to be dangerous even. But understood rightly, public church discipline is the last step in a strategy that is designed to bring about reconciliation, repentance, and restoration within the church. If a sin is so serious that, uh, if sin is so serious that we should rather drown than cause somebody to sin, if it's so serious we should rather uh, remove a, a hand or a foot rather than sin, then it is serious enough to deserve our loving confrontation of other Christians when they're caught in it. So, when Christians confront one another about sin, it is one way in which God's heart for the lost is made manifest in the church. Rather than being harsh or seen as uh, uh, something um, dangerous, it should actually be seen as evidence of loving concern for the, the one lost in sin, yes, but also for the church as a whole, so for both. So what is the strategy that Jesus gives us to help us keep one another from wandering off the Christian path and wandering away from the Christian faith? Well, it is a method for confronting persistent, unrepentant sin that moves slowly and systematically from private brotherly admonition to public communal rebukes in order to win back an errant brother or sister. First, it starts at the most private, the most informal level, a one-to-one -one conversation between Christians. Verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them out. You have won them over, rather. Notice that Jesus doesn't specify the nature of the sin here. 
He simply says, if a brother or sister sins. So first, we need to have reason to believe that a sin has been committed or is being committed. And we need to be clear that this is not just a matter of personality or personal opinion, but something that the Bible calls sin. If it is a matter of sin, then Jesus says that any Christian in the church has the right and the responsibility to discreetly go and speak with another Christian directly and privately about the matter. This is not necessarily a pastor's job alone. It's any Christian within the church, not just a Christian leader, but anyone who professes faith in Christ. And everyone has the right and responsibility. When the person pointing out the sin is humble and gracious, the person who is caught in sin can humbly repent. And, and that is cause for real rejoicing, both in heaven and in the church. Jesus says that rather than being lost to sin, uh, we will have won a brother or sister back. As awkward or as uncomfortable as it might initially be, if it's done in love, it can lead to deeper discipleship and stronger relationships in the church as I see that other people actually care about me and, and want to help me. As both parties can, can point one another to Jesus as Lord, a, a Lord worthy of being obeyed, and a Savior who loves to forgive. And that's what happens when, when these conversations take place. The vast majority of sin problems that might arise in a church can be, and perhaps should be, addressed in this way, at this first stage. In a healthy church, this kind of brotherly admonition, it happens all the time as we help each other to grow more and more like Christ. And repentance should be the quick response of any Christian person when they're confronted by uh, their own sin. But in an unhealthy church, well, this step is often skipped altogether. You know, people will spread gossip and accusations throughout the church, but they will never actually go and speak to the supposed sinner directly. And that shows that their motive is not to win a brother or a sister back to faithfulness. Rather, it's, it's to indulge their own sinful desires. And when that happens, perhaps two private, brotherly conversations need to take place. But what happens if a person caught in sin will not repent? Well, verse 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Notice again that Jesus' motive is to give the person caught in sin every opportunity to repent and to amend their lives. The people involved are kept to an absolute minimum needed to help bring about clarification. It is in the interest of everyone that one or two other mature Christians might be brought in because ha having a few people give their attention to the matter ensures that it's not just uh, misunderstanding in and it's not just um, a matter of uh, one person having one opinion against another person's other opinion. 
and it enhances the seriousness of what is at stake in the eyes of the, the person being confronted as well. It also makes clear to the wider group how this is being handled, the situation is being handled, so that it's not just two people becoming more entrenched against each other. Again, this doesn't need to be done by the pastor or necessarily other Christian leaders, but uh, Christian people within the church. Now, I, I have only seen a handful of issues reach this level, and I've heard of people uh, repenting at this stage. Maybe they're, they admit that they have um, an alcohol problem or, uh, and they repent, or maybe they admit a, a marital infidelity and the, the wrongness of that, and they, they want to amend that. But sadly, I have never actually seen somebody who refused to repent at that lower level begin to repent at this second level. Many years ago, in a country far away, a church warden who was challenged for moving in with his new girlfriend simply wrote a strongly worded letter to the pastor, cursed me, and permanently left the church. Now, when a, a, a person preemptively excommunicates themselves from the church like that, well, there's not really anything more that a church can do to, to help them, to try to call them back. But if two or three Christians agree that it is a, a sin issue and that it warrants repentance, yet the person refuses to repent, the matter is then taken uh, to a further stage. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now the final stage is to bring the matter before the whole church. Now this is done to show the person that it is not a matter that is indifferent. It's not something that Christians are able to just agree to disagree about. Rather, it's something that the whole church publicly agrees is a, a sin issue and that demands repentance. This is obviously a difficult thing, but when it's done with the motive of, of trying to win a person back to God, um, then it can be a, a, a good thing, it can be a helpful thing. The hope is that they will feel the weight of the whole church bearing down on them, and, and perhaps they'll feel the shame of, of being publicly um, called out in, in that way for sin, and they will repent. If that does happen, then of course uh, they are wonderfully won back. There's great rejoicing in heaven and in the church at that time. But if they will not listen to the church, then based on their refusal to turn from sin, Jesus says, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, they should be treated as non-believers. Now what does that mean exactly? Well, it surely cannot mean that uh, we do the kind of shunning that Anabaptists like the Amish or the Plymouth Brethren uh, have taught. When they cast people out of the church, they cut them off socially as well. Uh, they refuse to interact with them. They, they cut off parents from their children and children from their families and, and people from their communities and, and treat them as persona non grata. 
They refuse to, to lend them any kind of aid or take any, uh, even have conversations with them. But Christ does not tell us to shun non-Christians like that, does he? He tells us to, to love non-Christians. He tells us to preach the gospel to non-Christians. He tells us to pray for non-Christians and so on. Now, to treat somebody as a non-believer means that uh, simply we should no longer assume spiritual fellowship with them. So they should no more share in the Lord's Supper at church than a non-believer should share in it. We should assume no more spiritual union with them than we might have with the, the worshiper at the um, traditional Chinese religious temple across the street. But we should no more look to them for help in discipleship than we would look to an atheist friend of ours. What God will finally say about them in the end, we can't know that for sure. Excommunication is not a preemptive judgment about their eternal destiny. God has the final judgment. But this most serious level of discipline does say that if their inward disposition, which only God can see, matches their outward uh, rebellion against God's word, which the whole church can see and agrees on, well then they certainly will come under God's judgment. So God is able to judge perfectly and he will do that, but the church is saying uh, if what's inside matches what we see on the outside, uh, then this is reason to, to think you are outside the faith. But even at this stage, the purpose of church discipline is not so much to punish someone as it is to restore them. We want to win back the brother or the sister through discipline, to make them long for spiritual fellowship that they used to share with their spiritual uh, siblings, to convince them that there is no sin worth holding on to uh, if it separates them from their Christian family and from their Father in Heaven, ultimately. As the whole church unites together to stand against sin and to urge repentance, it's a powerful witness to a person, the rest of the church and the world. There is still hope of repentance and restoration even for those who the church publicly disciplines, and that's what we pray for. And so that's Jesus' second point in this. But thirdly, the church speaks with God's authority on earth, so we should have confidence in its judgments. And that's verses 18 to 20. I suppose all of uh, what we've just talked about, it might have seemed quite technical and, and difficult and certainly uncomfortable for some of us. You might be asking, is that really a good way for the church to treat uh, Christians? and to bring Christians back from um, leaving the faith. Isn't it all just a bit judgmental? And who are any of us to tell somebody what God does or doesn't require of them? Well, Jesus' answer is that you and I are his church. We are his church, and he's empowered us by his Holy Spirit. He's equipped us with the truth of the scriptures, and he has charged us to make right judgments. Not to be judgmental, to make right judgments, though. And hear how very much encouragement Jesus gives the church. 
in verses 18 to 20. He says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. In verse 18, Jesus gives the same authority to the whole church on earth that he gave to his apostle Peter in chapter 16, verse 19. The power of binding and loosing, the, the power of the keys to the kingdom. As we said a few weeks ago, that means that when the church is preaching and teaching and applying the truths of Scripture faithfully, it is wielding God's authority on earth. It is giving people access to heaven or locking them out of it. Those who repent and believe the church's message about Jesus, that he is the king, they will be given access to God's heavenly kingdom. And those um, who harden their hearts to the message, those who refuse to repent and, and reject the church's authority, well, they are locked out of the kingdom of heaven and by God's authority. This is why matters of church discipline, when rightly conducted, are a really fearful thing, because it is the voice of God's judgment that's being declared. But it is also why the gospel of forgiveness in Christ is a really wonderful thing, because when it is preached, God actually forgives the people who receive the gospel. It's His authority. And we are not actually free to take or leave what we hear in church. We're not actually free to move on if we don't like the messages we hear at church. If it is a faithful proclamation of the scriptures, then it is actually God speaking to us, and we ignore it at our peril. And in verses 19 to 20, Jesus assures us that when Christians come together to do difficult things like church discipline, like calling a believer back out of sin in, in order to build them up as a disciple, he promises both his presence and his Father's power will be with us. So we, we need to ask, is Jesus able to rebuke somebody for sin? And of course the answer is yes, of course Jesus could rebuke someone. He's perfectly loving and perfectly just. And therefore, because he is with us, we are able to do the difficult thing of holding another person, another Christian to account as well. And we should also ask, is the Father powerful enough to bring somebody back from straying uh, from the Christian faith? Well, of course he is. We, we've already said he's willing to leave the 99 for a time in order to go and find the one who's strayed off and to bring it back. Therefore, when we humbly, lovingly, faithfully work together to carry out his will, that isn't to say that the church has never gotten it wrong. Certainly the medieval Roman Catholic Church did overstep the bounds of Scripture when when the Pope excommunicated entire people groups and entire nations. Because under the New Covenant, uh, the Church can only declare the salvation or the condemnation of individuals, not of 
entire groups. But even the reformers, who were themselves excommunicated from the, the Roman Catholic Church by the Pope, even the reformers agreed that church discipline is one of three necessary features of a true church. They said a, a true church must preach the true gospel. A true church must administer the sacraments, that is, the Lord's Supper and baptism, rightly. And they said, thirdly, a true church must exercise discipline. Now, if you preach the gospel, uh, if you preach the true gospel faithfully, well, the sacraments and discipline are uh, rolled into that already. Now, the Anglican Church, as well, speaks of discipline in Article 33 of the 39 Articles, the, the kind of founding uh, document of, of Anglican doctrine. That person, it says, uh, sorry, Article 33 says, uh, it's titled, Of Excommunicate Persons, How They Are to Be Avoided. That person, which by open denunciation of the Church is rightly cut off from the unity of the Church and excommunicated, ought to be taken of the whole multitude of the faithful as a heathen and a publican, until he be openly reconciled by penance and received into the church by a judge that hath authority thereunto. Now, because I believe that Scripture commands it, and because I believe that the entirety of church history bears witness to it, I believe that the church that follows Jesus' strategy in dealing with sin will be blessed by Him. It is a way of loving one another individually by being mutually accountable for and responsible for one another. It is a way of loving the church as a whole because it, it shows our concern for the church's beauty and purity and witness to the world. It is a way of loving God by obeying His commands and seeking to honor Him. And we ignore these verses at our peril and perhaps at the perishing of some. But insofar as we practice what these verses teach, what Jesus teaches us here, we do so for our greater flourishing and for the health of our brothers and sisters in the church. Jesus will be with us as we help one another to turn from sin and turn to Him. The Father's power will be at work in us, and we will powerfully bear witness to the living God in our area as we carry it out. Well, let me pray as we close this morning. Father God, we confess to you that we are prone to wonder we're prone to turn away from you like sheep wandering off. And we are so grateful that you call us back. We're so grateful for your uh, loving concern for each one of your children as individuals. And we thank you that you have given us brothers and sisters to help look out for us and to help call us back. Lord, we see that some of these things that Jesus tells us are difficult. And perhaps we wonder, can we really carry them out in a way that glorifies you and helps others? Well, Lord, you have promised that as we 
attempt to be faithful, as we try to apply what you have taught us in the scriptures, that you will be with us, that you will empower us, and that you will bless us. And so, Father, I pray that Resurrection Church would be a church that is faithful to you and that is blessed by you. Please help us in our weakness. And please unite us in our love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.